about it. Thanks. Good morning. The April 5th, 2006 edition of the New York Times ran a lengthy article that chronicles the resurgence of the family meal. The article was based on research by the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University right here in New York. In that research, they found that there's been a recent rise in the number of children ages 12 to 17 who have said that they eat dinner with their families at least five times a week. That's actually up to 50%, excuse me, 58% of teenagers from 47% just in 1998. So a somewhat rapid rise in the family meal. Richard Mullery, a spokesman at the Institute, said this, people are really starting to understand this is an important thing, the family meal. Families that do have dinner together often are families whose parents are fully engaged in the lives of their kids. The study at Columbia also showed that teenagers as a whole that have frequent shared dinners with their parents are better off in life. They grow up to become more stable adults. They grow up to make better decisions over the simple fact of a shared family meal regularly in the early years of their lives. Virtually every nation, excuse me, virtually every state in America right now has this phenomenon spreading. There are grassroots efforts in many communities to bring back the shared family meal. So much so that even right out our back door in, in Ridgewood, New Jersey, they now conduct an annual family night. And communities around Ridgewood are doing the same thing because they're beginning to see, again, the need for this family meal, the benefit of it. So they, they agree this, this one time per year. Hopefully we do it a lot more than just once a year. But they agree to cancel all sports, all extracurricular activities, so on and so forth, for the purpose, as a community of a whole, sharing a family meal with their families. Our Albert Moeller, president of the seminary, that I attended, Southern Seminary, has said this, the shared family meal fulfills more than the function of feeding the family. In the intimate sphere of the shared meal, children learn how to engage in conversation and how to enjoy the experience of hearing others talk. The family meal became the context for sharing the events of the day, for dealing with family crises, and for building the bonds that facilitate family intimacy. Parents taught children how to think about the issues of the day by making these a part of the conversation at the dinner table at night. Gentle admonitions and direct correction taught children how to respect others while eating, instilling an understanding of the basic habits that encourage mutual respect and promote civilized relationships. Now, while there is hardly any more important family, in, or excuse me, earthly institution than the family unit, and while as research shows, there's hardly more important time in the life of that family unit than the shared family meal, there is, however, a much greater family and a much more important family meal. The family is us, the family of God, the body of Christ on earth. And the family meal that we 
share together in as the family of God is the Lord's Supper that we have before us today. I want to invite everyone to take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're a guest, you can grab the pew Bible in the pocket in front of you. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll read just a few short verses. And really, my desire today with today's sermon is, is a bit different. I want us to just meditate on the implication of the Lord's Supper for our lives today. After we read these few short verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll derive some meditations that would be beneficial for us to meditate upon as we look upon the elements of the Lord's Supper before us. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, we'll read 23 to 26. Follow along with me. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your divine wisdom, you have called us out of darkness into light and brought us into the family of God. We are now one body. And as your family, we share a very significant meal, the Lord's Supper, as it reminds us of the basics of the gospel. So Father, as we engage this text today, to seek to prepare our hearts to actually celebrate this meal in a few moments. Father, may we learn from this text. May we meditate upon its implications for us so that we would be worthy to celebrate this supper together. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So again, we will go through a list of meditations upon that text. Meditation number one, through the Lord's Supper, the unity of the church is strengthened. Through the Lord's Supper, the unity of the church is strengthened. Now, we have to ask the question, how is the unity of church strengthened through the Lord's Supper? The culmination of the Supper, that central element, is the remembrance of the sacrificial work of Christ for sinners. As we focus in on the Gospel, as it's represented in the Lord's Supper, in these elements before us, our petty differences begin to fall away. The remedy for disunity of any sort within a local church is always the cross of Christ. And we see that cross again in the elements of the Lord's Supper. On unity, the Apostle Paul has this to say in Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your calling. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism. One God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. The main point of these verses is the command to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received, which is really just another way for the Apostle Paul to say, walk in a manner worthy of the salvation that we have been given. Now verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians chapter 4 each help us to answer what it looks like, practically speaking, to walk in a manner worthy of our salvation. We walk in a manner worthy of our salvation when in humility, gentleness, and patience we bear with one another in love. In verse 3, to walk in a manner worthy of our salvation is to express an eagerness to maintain unity. An eagerness to express or maintain unity. Pastor John Piper has said this on the topic of unity. If believers were consistent, consistently diligent in pursuing the scriptural character pillars of faith, obedience, humility, and love, the devotion to unity would be automatic. But in the real world where the church functions, unity is very fragile and always susceptible to disruption. The devil uses believers' sinfulness to foster disunity within the church. When two or more people insist on having their ways, individual priorities eventually conflict and arguments will result within the body of Christ. Church unity cannot possibly exist if members' goals, purposes, and ideals are driven by personal egos. So let me ask ourselves this question. What are we doing to preserve the unity of the body of Christ? What are we doing in this particular local church to preserve the unity of this particular local body? Are you actively contributing to the corporate unity of this church in your conversations with one another? In your interactions with one another? Are you careful what you say in casual conversation so that the unity of this church, the unity of us as a family, it's not called into question. Through the Lord's Supper, the unity of the church is strengthened. Second meditation. Through the Lord's Supper, our evangelism and missions is strengthened. Through the Lord's Supper, our evangelism and missions is strengthened. Now, just how is this so? Our evangelism and missions are strengthened in the Lord's Supper because as we celebrate this meal, we are actively proclaiming His death to sin and His resurrection to conquer death for all those who repent and believe in Christ. That's you and me. We have all already been brought into the family of God and now as we remember Christ's substitutionary work for us in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim it to others. There is a proclamation element. You actually see that word in the text that we read. There is a proclamation that we are actively engaging in as we celebrate this meal together. Yes, a proclamation among one another in this particular local church and a proclama proclamation to those outside this local church. So we become stronger in our evangelism, our missions, and our church planting by regularly celebrating the supper together and remember, remembering that central element of the supper, our substitute, Christ, who went to the cross for us and we take it to those who need to hear that proclaimed in their own lives 
Matthew 28, the Great Commission says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or Robert Moeller, who I've already referred to, has said this. Our vision for world evangelization is an important barometer of spiritual and theological health. A vibrant commitment to Christ leads to a passion for the gospel. A grand embrace of God's truth produces an enthusiasm to see God glorified as His name is proclaimed to the nations. Do you have a passion for world evangelization and local evangelism and church planting because of your commitment to Christ? We're reminded in the Lord's Supper that at all times we're to proclaim the simple gospel message that Christ came to save sinners. That is what we are reminding ourselves that has taken place in our life as we as believers take those elements together. But we also must remember as we leave that supper that we take that proclamation to others. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should be re-energized in our commitment to share Christ with others. What relationships are you currently building right now for the purpose of sharing the gospel? Meditation number three. Through the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the cross on which Christ died. Again, through the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the cross on which Christ died. In the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that Christ, as we've already said, accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. We cannot get ourselves back to God on our own efforts. The Bible is clear on that. The Bible teaches fundamentally that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's goodness. And that sin has plunged us into spiritual death and separation from God. Paul in Colossians 1.21 says that we are alienated from God and hostile in mind until we repent and believe. Because we have no grounds on which we can approach God, we need a substitute. Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, says this, For our sake... He made him, that is, God made Christ, for our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He knew no sin. So that in him, we who knew sin might become his righteousness. That's substitutionary language there. We needed a substitute to bring us back to God. Now, how did God accomplish this? It was through the cross on Calvary. Now, Isaiah 53 speaks of the purpose of the cross in this way. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Stricken for the transgression of my people. Now, as we again prepare for the Lord's Supper and as we gaze upon the elements literally sitting before us, we're reminded that the bread we eat in the Lord's Supper is intended to act as a symbol of the body of Christ. So much so that as we take that bread and as we put it in our mouths and literally crush it with our teeth, we are reminding ourselves that Christ, our substitute, was crushed for our sins. That we might obtain His righteousness and be made right with God again and have that relationship restored. Without the cross at the center of our faith, we have no hope of approach to God. We have no basis for the forgiveness of sins without the cross of Christ. Author C.J. Mahaney in his book, The Cross-Centered Life, addresses why the cross of Christ should be the climax and key to our lives. Mahaney says this, the cross climaxes the storyline of the Bible and it's the true climax of the storyline of all our lives. The gospel's truths are to saturate our lives just as much as it saturates Paul's writings and all of Scripture. So another question, another point of application for us. Does the cross of Christ saturate our lives? Does the cross of Christ saturate our lives? As we are reminded of the substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf in the Lord's Supper, a wellspring of gratitude should literally come up from our hearts and express humility, humility and thanksgiving to God who made all this possible. Do you find yourselves overcome with humility and gratitude when you look upon the cross on which your Savior died? Do you find yourself overcome with humility and gratitude as we remember that act together as we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Meditation number four. Through the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of God's love for us. Through the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of God's love for us. We see the love of God in the Lord's Supper because as we celebrate the Supper, we're reminded that the forgiveness we have received was wrought by the work of another. That substitute again we just got done speaking about. It was a loving act of God the Father for us in freely choosing to send His Son to die on a cross to provide for us, as Paul says elsewhere, a mediator to bring us back to God. And in all of this, we see God's love for us. Paul in Romans, 5, 8, Roman, excuse me, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, puts it like this. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John chapter 4 tells us that God is love, and because of this, we can now love and ought to love one another. Also in the book of 1 John, a great book, by the way, if you struggle with the love of God, 1 John, chapter 3, verse 1 says this, 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. What love is this? That those who once were at enmity with God have now been brought back to God because of a substitute and now we are called the children of God. What love, what love is this? Octavius Winslow was a 19th century pastor who pondered the following question. Who delivered Jesus up to die? And Winslow answered with this. It was not Judas who delivered Jesus up to die. Not for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. It was the Father who delivered up Christ for love of us. As we approach the table together in just a few moments, it's my hope that we're refreshed once again in God's love and that as we leave, we are emboldened by that love. We are encouraged by that love to go out and to live for Him in the coming week. Now, many of you today, or some of you today, may honestly struggle with the concept of God's love for you. You need look no further than the symbolism portrayed in the Lord's Supper to be reminded, to be taught, God's, God is love. God loves us and made a way. So if you're here today and you're struggling with the love of God, then look on what we are about to celebrate. Look at what has been done for you that you cannot do for yourself. If you struggle with receiving God's love for you, then make it your goal to go to the Bible daily and remind yourself of the extent of God's love portrayed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Meditation number five. Through the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of a meal yet to come. Through the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of a meal yet to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 26 in, in the few short verses we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 26 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's an important qualification. This is not a meal that we will have forever. It is a meal for a specific time. We celebrate this meal until the Lord comes. This verse reminds us that while the Lord's Supper is one of the single most important aspects of our life together, there is still something greater that we look forward to. The marriage supper of the Lamb. That all the redeemed will be invited to. Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should remember that the greatest meal of all is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we will one day share together. Only not just us, now we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a particular local church. These people in this local church. But the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be a far greater meal where believers of all ages, throughout all of history, will be there at this meal, celebrating this supper, worshiping God for the redemption we have received. The marriage supper of the Lamb is actually found in Revelations, the book of Revelations, chapter 19. Listen to me as I read these verses for you in verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many 
waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. That's us. We are the bride of Christ. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed is he who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We share this meal today but as we share it, and as we look upon and are reminded freshly of the substitute that was made for us, we are also reminded that this is temporary. There is a day when Christ will return to call His children to glory to celebrate this magnificent meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I can vividly remember many years ago listening to a sermon by John Piper when he was preaching through the book of Hebrews. I can't remember the text, but he had a point of application that for me was just piercing, and I've remembered it all these years. And, and he said this, there should, be an evidence, there should be an evident homesickness about our faith. There should be an evident homesickness about our faith. The faith that we enjoy here and now is not all. There is another co component as, as theologians say, we are experiencing the already part of our salvation now, but there's also a not yet part to come. And therefore, we should have a homesickness characterize our faith. Now, these meditations on the Lord's Supper are meant to stir our hearts up with love for God as well as having them serve to search our hearts daily to make sure the gospel is constantly getting greater in our hearts. That's the challenge we have in this life, isn't it? As difficult as life can be, as feeble and frail we can be, and as tender and difficult as our relationships can be in this life, it can be a struggle to constantly, one, focus on the gospel, and two, have it constantly become greater in our lives. In a short article entitled, Never Let the Gospel Get Smaller, John Piper reflects on the danger of allowing our understanding of the gospel to waste away. As an antidote, as an antidote to this reality, Piper developed for his own family what he calls an exhortation that they seek to implement in their own personal family. And he shared it with others. That exhortation is this, seek to see and feel the gospel as bigger as years go by rather than smaller. Seek to see and feel the gospel as bigger as years go by rather than smaller. Is the gospel getting bigger in your life daily than it had been in the past? In the article, Piper says, our temptation is to think that the gospel is for beginners and then we go on to greater things. But the real challenge is to see the gospel as the greatest thing and getting greater all the time. So to help flesh out this, this exhortation, Piper came up with some practical helps 
that are as follows. He says this, the gospel gets bigger when in your heart grace gets bigger. Christ gets greater, his death gets more wonderful, his resurrection gets more astonishing. The gospel gets bigger when the work of the Spirit gets mightier, the power of the gospel gets more pervasive, its global extent gets wider, your own sin gets uglier. The gospel gets bigger when the devil gets more evil, the gospel's roots in eternity go deeper. Its connections with everything in the Bible and in the world get stronger. And the magnitude of its celebration in eternity gets louder. So keep this in mind, Piper says. Never let the gospel get smaller in your heart. Never let the gospel get smaller in your heart. We are reminded of the gospel in summary in the Lord's Supper before us today. Let's fight together to never let the gospel get smaller in our hearts in the life of this church. Pray that it won't, Piper says. Read solid books about it, he says. Sing about it. Tell someone about it who is ignorant and unsure about it. And then Piper goes on to quote the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, that says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Are you in danger of allowing the gospel to get smaller in your life and in the life of your family? Seek to make the gospel get bigger and bigger in your life. The need for this seems to be behind Christ's command, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, why, why twice in these verses did Jesus tell us that we do this in remembrance of him? He knew that we are frail and feeble and would need constant reminders of the greatness of the gospel. That is the purpose of the Lord's Supper today. And we, together as a family, if you are a child of God, if you repented of your sins and accepted Christ as your Savior, we share this meal together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your divine wisdom in giving us something that we can hold on to, that we can do regularly to encourage us about the gospel. Something we can do this ordinance of the Lord's Supper that would regularly, each time we celebrate it, remind us afresh and anew of the power and the extent of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners. Father, I pray if there are some here today who are still in their sin, are still separated from God, that as we, the family of God, participate in this meal, they would see the love of God, the love of God that is held out to them if they would repent and believe. In Christ's name I pray, amen.